going to be reading from 1 Kings 19, 3 and 4. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. It's the word of the Lord, amen? Amen. Well, hey, before I get into the, like, wow, that's really dark. Before we go there, Mariners fans, where are we at today? I, was, I mean, it's big. I don't talk sports very often. But it's been 21 years for us to celebrate. So it's kind of a big deal. So if you got to watch, if you got to hang out, if you're celebrating, it's exciting, it's awesome. And as we like to say in Seattle, embrace the chaos. And here's a great transition for you. We're in the middle of chaos when it comes to this passage. Oh, that's good right there. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive in. We're in the middle of a series on Elijah in 1 Kings 19. So let's pray, and we'll go ahead and dive in. Father, thank you. Thank you for the time where your people come together to worship you, to sing to you, to gather in your name, and ultimately to experience you. We, we come from all different places of life right now, some full with joy, some um, filled with sadness. And Father, we bring our whole selves to you now, mind, body, soul, to hear your word, to open up our eyes to what it means to come to an end of ourselves. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ all across our city that are gathering right now, all across the world that have been gathering throughout the day. We thank you that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And ultimately, it's under the headship and lordship of Jesus. So, Father, we come before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't have a Bible already open, I encourage you to open it up to 1 Kings. We're going to be there for a little bit. On August 8th, just outside our house on the uh, corner of 8th Avenue and 320th, right across from the library, uh, a routine car collision turned deadly as two men got into a, a physical altercation, leading one man to return to his vehicle to get a firearm and kill the other person. Now, we can literally see this interact in this intersection from uh, Joya, our daughter's bedroom window. Now, we got to speak to some of the neighbors afterwards that uh, actually witnessed it all take place. And they told us that the person that uh, with the firearm after the incident was in absolute, complete shock about what they had just done. It was one of those moments where it's like a person did something that they could not believe they just did, had this outside-of-body experience, and then came back to the realization of the depth of what they had just done. He had hit his limit, but in a rageful reaction, he went beyond his limits. And this had disastrous effects, not only on himself, but on another human being and that person's family. Rage is not the only uh, way we run into our emotional and physical limitations. Oftentimes, it's through sadness, depression. Last week, we talked about being in an age of anxiety. And these can take us to places where we feel that we are completely out of control and have nothing left in us to move forward, where we are just done. 
Where is God in the midst of all that? When you and I have come to our wit's end and we have nothing left to offer, when we've come to an end of ourselves, where is a God who we claim to be holy and loving and sovereign and powerful? Where is God in the midst of that moment? Last week, we began a series that we're calling Journey to Renewal. We're looking at the story and life of Elijah, specifically in 1 Kings 19, where God takes him through these six different places or phases and stages of experiencing renewal in him. Last week, we looked at the work of Elijah, how he was a prophet, and he had just experienced the height of his success. So, so imagine your job where you are at your utmost, you're like the most successful you've ever been. And then there's this catalytic moment where, in his case, somebody's coming to try to kill him. Now, I hope that's not your story. But for him, somebody was trying to take him out. And so he ran, runs away, and he begins this journey of experiencing renewal for God. And this journey is both for Elijah and for us to receive renewal, life, invigoration from God. So as we go into this, I want to remind us, when I say the term renewal, what are we looking for? What does that look like? On the screen, there's going to be a definition from, uh, that I've been using, and this is from a, an author and pastor named Mark Sayers. So what is renewal? He says this, first, it's the refreshment, release, and advancement okay, that individuals, groups, churches, and cultures experience when they are aligned with God's presence. So as an individual, to receive refreshments from God when we are aligned with God's presence. And then secondly, as a result, it's the resumption of our God-given purpose to partner with God fully, participating in His plan to flood the world in His presence. Renewal is simply this, being refreshed by God, experiencing God in ways that you've never experienced so that what he does in you, he can then do through you into the world. The second part is what we call gospel saturation. And rather than say, let's go saturate the city, what we're doing in this time is saying, God, renew us. Bring us life. Fill your people with a new understanding of your presence. And then revival, in turn, is this. It's when renewal occurs on a large scale bringing significant advancement, growth, and kingdom fruit to a city, people group, movement, region, or nations. And I just like this line. Re uh, revival is when renewal is gone viral. Okay? So renewal, if, as we look at it now, experiencing this alignment with God's presence, refreshment from God, by God's grace it will happen through you and in your community and then through our church, and ultimately what we'd love to see God do is an outpouring of a spirit where it goes beyond us and affects every single person in our city. But the goal of this is to experience God at work in us so that God can then work through us. So Elijah, in this stage of his journey, is now at this new stage, and I honestly think it's kind of the first real stage of the journey that he and all of us must experience in various ways and at various times in our life 
if we're going to be renewed by God and experience him afresh. And it's the stage that I like to call coming to an end of yourself. So Elijah, out of fear for his life, he's run from the northern kingdom of Israel all the way to Beersheba. Now, you can imagine, this is 125 miles plus a day's journey, and he does it in a single day. Now, you can imagine that he's tired, physically exhausted, even though God has empowered him for this. But listen to the words of the mighty prophet, the one who just had the most success they've ever had in their life. Um, Listen to the words that come out of his mouth. What is he saying that we just read? It is enough. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And listen to the pure exhaustion. For many scholars, they actually believe that this is Elijah's suicide note to God. He literally prays to himself. He says this to himself, and then he prays this to God. It's like, God, just take away my life. I don't, I don't want to live anymore. I'm done. Now, our easy response could be, seriously, Elijah? I mean, where's your faith? Don't you know where, who God is and what he's done? Elijah, believe the gospel, right? Or it could be, don't you just remember how God moved through you so powerfully three days ago? Like, you just saw God show up in your life in unbelievable ways, and now you want to end your life? Like, come on, dude, buckle up your bootstraps, get after it. But Elijah... I mean, he's not alone in praying this type of prayer in the scriptures. When we think of the mighty men of God, when we think of the prophets that have come before us, we tend to think of them in their highest moments. But scripture is really honest and says that they're not the only ones that have come to the end of themselves. Moses prayed similarly to God after the people continually complain in Numbers 11 about the food God is providing for them. The prophet Jeremiah is so frustrated with God and how he's leading him to difficult circumstances that he boldly laments that he wishes that he never existed in the first place. And that's in Jeremiah uh, chapter 20, verses 7 through 20. Jonah, another prophet, but like Elijah, goes out by himself under a tree and comes to an end of himself. For him... It was because his nationalistic fervor was so opposed to Nineveh and the people of Nineveh receiving God that he would rather die than see those people repent. Now, these are mighty men of God, prophets who spoke on God's behalf. And where have each of them found themselves? At the end of themselves. Done. At their wit's end. What some people like to call, quote, rock bottom. And what is all of their response? What is their prayer in the midst of that moment? Take my life. I'm done. It's better that I never existed. I just, I'm I'm done with this. Now, let me be clear. A coming to an end of yourself does not mean that you are suicidal and want to die. Okay? So if you're like, okay, Justin, I've never experienced the suicidal tendencies of that. So I've never been to the end of myself. Well, there are major events in times 
in each of our lives and in each of our stories where the intensity of coming to an end of ourselves is higher than other times. There are, for all of us, regular times throughout our stories where we admit that we don't have it all together. We're, and ultimately, coming to an end of yourselves is this. It's saying, I'm in need of help. I, I got nothing left. I'm done. And in all of these stories, whether it's Elijah, Moses, Jeremiah, Jonah, whether it's our story or your stories of coming to an end of yourself, in all of them, God uses them. And he uses the coming to an end of ourself to prepare you to receive him more fully. A few years ago uh, is when I first started to realize that I was starting to experience this stage. Uh, I was in Vail, Colorado uh, with some other national SOMA leaders, um, learning from one another, talking about what was to come in the future. Now, this was October of 21, I think. So, I think it was maybe 2020. And so earlier that month, it was 2020, earlier that month, we as a church had just started what we were calling house-to-house gatherings, if anybody remembers that, where we weren't gathering together corporately, and we started to be really intentional about MCs meeting together on Sundays, not only for encouragement and equipping, but for worship as well. Now, I remember the morning of the launch of our house-to-house gatherings. I, I had just put a lot of work into it. We had had a lot of meetings. We were just getting it set up. We were, we were getting ready to rock. But I remember that morning specifically. We're out of nowhere. I, I, I was shocked when this happened. Out of nowhere, there was a deep level of sadness that I just could not control. I mean, I literally had to go for a walk. And this is usually one of those times like, hey, we're launching something new. It's really exciting. Yay! But I was not experiencing the yay of that moment. And I just went for a walk, and I just remember bawling my eyes out. I, I just got to go and just get, I, I don't even know where it was coming from. So Vail was later that month, the same month, and we were going around the table just sharing with some dear friends of mine. Um, and I don't remember the full contents of what was bothering me at the time. I mean, this was an emotional thing. There was no logic to what was happening at this moment. And I just, I was learning at this time to just pay attention to it. So I was like, okay, let's just pay attention and see what comes up. So I'm sharing this with the friends, and I don't remember the content, but it was something along the lines of that I wasn't getting the fruits um, from my life and ministry that I thought I should have been from this point in my life. When I imagine my life at that moment, and I look in the past, I thought I should be at a different place, and I thought that I deserved more from the work um, that I was doing for God. I remember praying a prayer. There's a book called Every Moment Holy, which is like a modern liturgical prayer thing, and the prayer was for those who haven't done great things for God, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I shared with um, my friend Ben afterwards and he came up to me, and I remember him telling this. I, I honestly think this was a prophetic word. He's a little bit older than me, a bit more experienced. And he, was, he said something that was like a Jedi master to a Padawan. You know, it's like you maybe said this to your teens or like your children, where you say something that's like so profound, and they only get like the surface level of it. And you're like, actually, you don't even know what I'm talking about right now. But that's okay. 
And he said, you know what, Justin, I've been praying. I've been praying that you come to an end of yourself. I was experiencing what Tim Keller says when he says, many times people think if God has called you to something, he's promising you success. He might be calling you to fail, to prepare you for something else through the failure. At the time, after he said that, it was like this aha moment came off in my mind. It's like, that's it. That's where I'm out. I get this now. Like, I'm there. And after I left that retreat, it felt like I turned a corner. It's like, okay, I now have an awareness of what's happening, so therefore, I must be all the way through what's happening. You've never experienced that, I'm sure. But unfortunately, it wasn't. It was just something I was aware of, and it wasn't something that had made it all the way into the depths of my heart at the time. And it honestly was something that brought me all the way up to when I began my sabbatical in the beginning of the summer. Uh, As I shared a few weeks ago, I was encouraged to think of a physical representation of the state of my soul at the time which is a weird question, but it was something that I had to think of. And God brought me to this image, as I shared a couple weeks ago, about a a lawn that was full of thatch. Now, somebody that just dethatched my yard a couple weeks ago, you have this little machine, and it's a thin layer of all the dirt and and stomped down dead grass. And without dethatching, you're not able to get the water into the soil to actually bring refreshment. And so it was just this thatched level that was hindering the growth and flourishing of um, my heart and like it does in the yard. Coming to an end of yourself is God graciously humbling you so you can find true life in him. What does James 4, 6 tell us? God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Because when we don't come to an end of ourselves, we tend to think that we can do it on our own. I've got this. Because when we tell God, I've got this, in essence, what we're telling him is, God, I don't need you. Which ultimately can very easily, and in my case, I know this to be true, In my case, it would have led me to getting all the glory for all of my actions. Like, ah, I got this, and then look at the fruit. Look what I've done. Look what I've built. Now, I may not have said that because I'm gospel-centered enough to know the right words to say. But in my heart, I would have believed that. God didn't give me what I wanted, and God oftentimes doesn't give us what we want Because he's wanting to show you the deeper desires of your heart and your deeper need and longing for him. And my friends, that is the place of coming to an end of yourself. That's the goodness of it. And that's needed if you and I are to be renewed. The simple moments of coming to an end of yourself is when you are able to truly say, God, I need your help. Now, you don't need to get suicidal to get there. That could happen periodically, regularly throughout the day, throughout your life. Now, I wish that we could, I could say that you only experience this stage once in your life. 
I wish in my flesh that I could say, you know what, guys, you're just going to go through this stage one time. It's in your midlife. It's in your mid-40s, and you go through a wall, and then you're done. I wish we could be like that. But unfortunately, I think this is something that God has to regularly bring us through. Now, you and I do everything we can in our flesh, in our old self, which we'll talk about in a minute, where we want to bypass this. We don't want to experience this. We don't want to go there. But this is a part of our lives that where we get to experience, I really believe this, where we get to experience in the flesh God's graciousness. Where have you found yourself coming to an end of yourself? Doesn't mean you're suicidal, but there's areas of your life where you've tried everything you can, but you just don't experience the fruit of your labor. Are there sinful desires that lead to sinful actions that you've tried to do everything you can to overcome, but you just can't overcome them on your own? Are there relationships in your life that you've done all you can to make healthy, but to no avail? When it comes to your life called by God to make disciples, are there people in your life where you've just come to a wit's end with? And as we as a body, Soma Fred away, are we willing to see that in many ways we right now are coming to an end of ourselves and in desperate need for God to move in us? And how is God preparing you and as a result preparing us to receive him more fully? This is not just personal there are corporate elements to the people of God receiving renewal. And so I want to take a look at historically where the stage of coming to an end of yourself, how it shows that this is vital if we want to see God move through us powerfully in ways. Mark Sayer says this. He says, every renewal and revival begins with people who reach such a moment who truly come to an end of themselves, discovering the depth of their own sin and the immensity of a holy God who is intent on removing rebellion, evil, and ill from the world, yet who sent his son to die upon the cross to invite us to be on the side of remaking of the world. What do we get when we allow God to bring us to the end of ourselves? First, we get him, but we also get to be part of him doing something only he can do through us. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says this, read the histories and every account of every revival that has ever taken place, and you will invariably find this, that the one man or the group, the little group of people who have been used by God in this way to send revival, have always known a state of utter desperation and final despair. Every single one of them. Read the journals of Whitfield and Wesley. Read the life histories of these men. They have always come to a place where they have realized their utter and absolute impotence. Yeah, that's a fun one. Listen to Mark Sayers again. These are two quotes. He says, Before his reigns of blessing and renewal come, the soil must be broken up, turned over, so we can be ready to receive. 
This is the thatch being dethatched, coming up, exposing the fresh soil so water, when it is poured, can come. And he says this, in renewal, the breaking down must come before the building up. When we allow God to graciously bring us to an end of ourselves, not only do we get him, we get to join him in the work that he's doing more profoundly than he ever had before. Where is the thatch in your own life? Where is that, where is that in you? Where God has to till the soil. Now the flip side of the goodness is if we don't allow him to do that, when, not if, when he does pour himself out, if we don't allow the breaking down of that, what will happen is the water will pour, but it won't be able to reach your heart. It'll, if you think of a thatched uh, lawn, you, you pour water on it, and what happens? It puddles on top, and then it goes finds somewhere where it can actually go into the lawn. If we don't allow God to do this in us, what we're saying is when, when I'm, I'm really intentional on when right now, when God brings renewal to us, when he brings it to you, our hearts aren't prepared. And that water will just go on to somebody else or, some, or another church or another missional community or another group and we'll miss out on what God's doing. Once we've realized we're in the space where God is graciously humbling, humbling us and bringing us to an end of ourselves, now the question is, what does it look like for us to partner with him? What is our job? What, what must we do at this point of the experience if we're to sustain us for the rest of the journey towards renewal? And this is what you see in the story of Elijah. To come to an end of yourself is an emotional experience. Emotion, uh, Elijah expresses these emotions in raw, unedited ways. And because this is an emotional experience, we have to look at what role does emotions play in our lives Elijah was aware of his emotional state, and he was able to share them in unfiltered ways. Like the others, this was emotional awareness and then articulation, the sharing of it. Now, my fear in our culture, in our time, is that there's such a misunderstanding of emotions that our lack of awareness and ability to be un understand them will hinder our ability to encounter God more fully. Now, to be clear, emotional awareness, which we're about to lean into for our remaining time, this isn't only for the coming to an end of yourself. You always need this. This is always vital. But this is where we see the story of Elijah. So, you're about to hear me use the term, quote, self. Now, to be clear... I'm not using the term self in the modern psychological sense. This uh, theologian M. Robert Mulholland Jr. says self is, the word self is best used, and I quote, in the larger biblical sense of personhood, framed within the context of a life lived in relationship with God, in community with others, and as part of his creation. In this sense, 
Self is the fullness of your humanity created in the image of God. So this fullness of this self that you are includes physical, spiritual, intellectual, social, and emotional. There's a fullness of it. Now, this is what Paul says in Ephesians verses 22 and verse 24. He says, to put off your old what? Your old self and to put on your new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay? So I'm looking at this from a biblical perspective, not from a modern psychological perspective. Be really, really clear. So yourself is the fullness of you are physical, spiritual, intellectual, social, and emotional. Now, for centuries, theologians have recognized the importance of self-awareness. Now, the emotional awareness of what we're seeing in Elijah is an outworking of this important aspect. But listen to these um, theologians through the centuries. Augustine, in confession in 480, wrote this. How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And he ended up praying, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Meister Eckhart, a Dominican writer from the 13th century, wrote this. No one can know God who does not first know himself. St. Teresa of Avila in 1566 wrote in The Way of Perfection, quote, almost all problems in spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. And John Calvin, like the John Calvin, like Calvinism John Calvin, who's very much theologically dense and rich and thick, the opening line of his magnus opus, Institutes of Christian Religion, he says this, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But these are connected together by many ties. It's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. Simply stated, our task as disciples during the, this stage in all of our lives includes a building of a self-awareness so we can be more fully present and fully worship God in all of his fullness. So part of self-awareness is being able to understand where you are in the moments. Now, biblically, the old self is also called the sinful nature, living out of your flesh. The new self is one created and given to us by God as we are redeemed by him. And we know, based on Romans 7, and we know scripture, that while we are this new self, new person in Christ, man, does that old self like to show up sometimes. And scripture is all about learning to live out of the new identity, the new self, the new person, and not living in line with the old. This emotional awareness, this self-awareness, helps us understand which side we're living out of. Is this the old man? Is this the old self? Is this the old person? Is this according to my flesh? Or is this according to who God has new, the new identity he's given to me? Our job is to understand this. And in essence, it's to learn how to what I'll call feel it and name it. 
To know what's going on inside your heart allows you to be fully present to the God who is always with you at that very place. Now, you may be asking at this moment, is this even biblical? Like, or is this some new age psycho babble jargon mumbo jumbo that Justin is just learning from culture and trying to bring it in here? I'm glad you asked. Because this is what the largest book of the Bible is all about. The lo- this is what happens in the Psalms. The Psalms are God's words modeling emotional health and wellness way before modern psychology. And he didn't just write one example. Don't miss this. Like, there are 150 different psalms modeling what it's like for God's people to experience the rawness of their relationships, the rawness of where they're at. What, now, we think that we get to hear about it once, and, and then God comes around and says, actually, no, you need 150 examples because it's, so, it's such a robust part of how he's created us. The Psalms are all written by those who have often find them pl- at themselves at the place of the end of themselves. They're at the edge of their life. They're in the raw fullness of the diversity of all human emotions. And so while they go through the basic elements of intimate address or a complaint or a petition, whatever it may be, they're calling God and they're bringing where they are at to God. This is what Adam Young says. He says, the Psalms are there to let us know that we need not censure or deny the depth of our feeling. Instead, we are invited to bring them to passionate and gritty speech and address our words to a God who is immensely personal to us. Biblically, the expression of undesired emotions was lament. This is the deep expression of where you're at, the sadness of things, especially the emotions that many would call, quote, bad ones. These aren't cleaned up emotions. These aren't trying to fit into a theological category emotions, where you're not saying, I feel this but God. Right? You're just, this is what is. And oftentimes, the psalmists exaggerate. They, they don't just, like, tell you what is. They kind of blow it out of proportions. Especially if you look at the Psalms and the stories that's attached with those Psalms, you're like, really, that's not that bad, big of a deal, dude. Why are you feeling that? Because it's the rawness of what's actually happening in life. When we allow ourselves to feel this rawness, bring them to a God is fully present with us. We can receive the fullness of God's gift and presence to us. In the words of Kurt Thompson, it's the longing to be safe, seen, and soothed, and that can only and fully be found in Christ. When we come to an end of ourselves, the full range of our emotions will be available to us in its rawest form, rather than stuff them down, like many of us tend to do, rather than ignore them and move on. Or we allow them to drive us like the roller coaster and the tendencies that emotions can be. We bring where we are into the presence of a caring God who can meet our needs. 
So my question for you is, what is your understanding of emotions in general? Many of you have been taught that all feelings are unreliable and therefore cannot be trusted. One author, Chip Dodd, says this, feelings ultimately are tools. We have been given to live fully in a tragic place where wonder and tragedy, great loves and great losses intermingle. If emotions are a tool, they're part of who we are in Christ. How are we to use these tools? And what is the right understanding of emotions? Three things real quickly to frame how, what they are and what they are not. Emotions are first true, but not ultimate truth. Emotions are true, but not ultimate truth. Now, emotions are not just some disembodied part of our evil spirituality. Emotions are experienced physically. There are literally electrical currents flowing through your brain when you feel. And oftentimes, your brain physiologically changes with certain emotions. So we don't get to say there's body and soul. and No, like, yes, there are, but emotions aren't just the spiritual or this ethereal weird thing. They're physically embodied. They are embodied reality. They are, quote, true because they are what you are experiencing in the world at that very moment. Okay? However... They're not ultimate truth. Elijah, in this story, laments to God. He says he's lonely later on in this passage, and he says he's the only one left. He's expressing the rawness of his emotions to God. And in essence, these are lowercase t, in quotes, true for him, because he's feeling them and there is emotional response. However, God then tells him that there's 7,000 other people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So while he's experiencing it, it's not the trueness of what's actually happening in the world. He felt alone, but in truth, he wasn't alone. Ultimate truth is found in the Bible, okay? It's revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Like, feelings don't transcend Scripture, However, sometimes our emotions don't line up with the ultimate truth. We may not feel like children of God, but we are. You may not feel loved. You may feel alone or feel unseen. And while that's not ultimate truth, it's important to learn the difference between those two. Yes, we have to remind ourselves of what is really truth to encounter what we feel to be true. So we can't say, well, I feel this, therefore it's my truth. No. It is true of what you're experiencing, but we, our job as disciples is to align our lives up to the Scriptures, to align our lives up to the truth of Jesus. So emotions are true, but they're not ultimate truth. Last week, uh, I've had you been reading the welcome prayer and I love the responses I'm getting. And there's a specific line in there that says, I welcome every thought, feeling, emotion, situation, condition, or person. And you're like, what do you mean you welcome? And what I'm saying there, and what I'm trying to get you, I mean, this is intentional, okay? There's a disorientation with that line. 
Because when we think welcome, it's like we accept it and we like it and we want to keep going through it. And what I'm saying is no. I'm trying to get us to learn what is present with you in the moment. What is, what are you experiencing right there and then? We welcome that not so we can give it a thumbs up and our stamp of approval. We welcome it so that we can actually do something about it. So we can know what's present. So we can be present with it and be present with a holy God. We welcome it not to push it aside or ignore it, but to bring it to him. So emotions are true, but not ultimate truth. Secondly, emotions are important, but not ultimate importance. We live in a day where emotions have been placed on such a pedestal in people's lives. Like, I feel this, therefore everybody else around me has to oblige by my feeling and go with what I think should happen in the world. Where we're losing like long-term, generational, historical understandings of reality because we are saying, oh, well, I feel this way, so therefore it must be true. True, like I said, this is ultimately found in the scriptures. So it's important, and that's why I'm taking the whole Sunday leaning into this. But it's not ultimate importance. There's other things. Like feelings do not get to determine if you are obedient to God or not. Okay? Now, it's going to help you learn how to be more obedient. But if you like, ah, I don't really feel like doing what God told me to do today. Sorry, that's old self, not new self. See what I'm saying? And now, there can be hindrances. You're like, man, I just, I'm, I'm feeling this way. But I know this to be true. The more you build an awareness of where and when you feel that, you're able to build strength to persevere through that. That's where we're talking about. That's where I'm at today. Emotions are drivers in the human experience, yet we cannot make them of ultimate importance rather than following Jesus and his kingdom principles. So they're true, but not ultimate truth. They're important, they're not ultimate importance. And third, they're non-moral, but they lead to morality. We tend to think of emotions as, quote, good or bad. But when we look to the scriptures, we have to see that we are made in the image of a a relational and emotional God. He experiences regret and trouble. He experiences anger. God is sorrowful and troubled, but he's also full of joy. Because God does not sin, the emotions in and of themselves are not sinful. They just are. But they have the power to lead us to sinful ways. One example, really quick, what many call a bad emotion. It's the emotion of anger. In my, what is now my current office, uh, there used to be a sign that was like a, a caution sign. It was black and red, and it said, anger is danger. And I always want to say anger is danger or anger is danger or whatever, okay? But it says anger is danger. And it's, the, consider, it's saying that this emotion in and of itself is a bad thing. Now, I use this story in the beginning of this sermon because it's an example of anger leading to rage. And that's living out of according to our sinful old flesh or old self in Galatians 5 verse 19. Anger can be positive in that it can lead us to calling, passion, and recognizing what's wrong in the world. 
but, and anger is about justice. But when we go beyond that and we go to rage, which is about powerlessness, we're taking the goodness of something to reveal how we can bring it to God, and we're going to our flesh with that instead. We also have the tendency in our culture to view emotions as either masculine or feminine. There are certain emotions that are feminine that are more prone to women. Now, I don't want to ignore that there are normative cultural acceptance around certain types of emotions. But to designate certain ones as men can't fill in the blank and women can't fill in the blank is to deny one another the fullness of our humanity. Hear that. There are no masculine and feminine emotions in and of themselves. Sadness, my fellow brothers in Christ, is a good thing to experience. What's the shortest uh, verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Wept. You don't think he experienced sadness? Like There's these ones that we just want to stay away from. Ladies, who says that you can't experience anger? Who says you can't experience the injustices in the world and want to do something about it? Well, you want to stand up and, and go for it. That's good. So let's not, as a family in Christ, as we lean into this, say, oh, that's, oh I can't experience this. I'm, that's off limits. That's not within this. Jesus experienced the fullness of it. He was full of joy. He experienced sorrow. He was sadness. He was the fullness of humanity. We're about to enter Advent, which is, which is all about the incarnation. And in the incarnation, Jesus felt. He experienced Walter Brueggemann says this, human experience includes those dangerous and difficult times of disorientation when the sky does fall and the world does come to an end. The times of disorientation are times when persons are driven to the extremities of emotion, of integrating capacity and language. To experience emotions is to be human. Our job is to be aware of what we're experiencing so we know what we're bringing to God. If we are to live life in Jesus and life to the full, we must become self-aware of our whole selves, including our emotions.